Amen. Indeed, it is our joy and pleasure to speak forth God's word and his truth to us, and we do so this morning from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of their mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were with them, themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated Not everything that is new is better. With the invention of technology, we can now talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime. And I think we are all grateful for that. But that form of communication, that convenience, has stifled other forms of communication. Namely, that of letter writing. I don't know when it was the last time you wrote an actual letter, but I'm guessing it's been quite some time, but there is something in letters that cannot be captured by a text or a phone call or even a a video chat, namely that when you write these letters, most often you deliberate over the words that are chosen. Each thought, each sentence, each word is typically chosen with care in order to convey what is going to be said. And in that way, it is going to be much more intentional, capturing more of the heart and the mind than any other form of communication. Therefore, those letters, both when they are written and when they are received, have that much more weight. The recipient is going to pour over every word, what was written and how it was written and how it was conveyed and the way that it was said. Perhaps you remember receiving a love letter at one time in your life. You might have read over it a hundred plus times to the point that it was practically memorized. 
It never said anything different, but each time it's like that person was saying it all over again. And those words were forever preserved on that sheet of paper or in that card. My wife owns some letters that her grandfather wrote to her grandmother while away at war. And I tell you, those letters are a highly valuable heirloom, as valuable as anything else that they possess. Why? Because those letters capture that person, their heart, their mind, and oftentimes, in this case, a person that's no longer around. And so all they have are those letters now. Perhaps you have something very similar in your possession. Well, in our passage this morning, we have a a letter, a letter that's been preserved for us. Perhaps you could even call it an apostolic love letter, a letter that came out of a decision that sought to restore the peace and the unity of the church and churches that had been wrought with strife and dissension and division. There was a problem, a major problem, a gospel problem, one in the end that they got correct. But just because they got the answer right does not mean that that was now going to be applied correctly. That correction needed to be conveyed. It needed to be sent now to those who are having the problem. And that's what we have this morning in front of us. And we can learn much from this letter, both in the manner in which it was written as well as what was said. There's many lessons of of leadership here, as well as how to maintain unity and restore it when there is division and when there is strife. And so we'll see that in two points this morning. The letter sent and then letter received. First, letter sent. I'll begin where I left off last week, and that is Acts 15 is a watershed moment in the entirety of the books of Acts, really in the the Bible itself, in, in God's revelation to us and to his church, probably along with Acts chapter 10 where Peter has this vision and then goes to the home of Cornelius, that along with this chapter are two monumental events in the book of Acts. And they are connected, they are interrelated, of course. What happened on an individual basis with Peter in Acts chapter 10 is now what is taking place on a a corporate level, on the level of the whole entire church in Acts chapter 15. And as I've said then and will say again, the life of the church would have looked very differently if they did not get this correct. Christianity would have just become a a sect of Judaism rather than the right fulfillment of it. And it's important. It's important to us, especially when I look out and see before me a bunch of Gentile dogs. And that's what you would have been, me too. That's how we would have been viewed by first century Jews, not just those that were still in Judaism, even those that were in the church, those that had become believers in Christ. They thought that Jewish distinction must be maintained, that the Gentile believers 
needed to be Jewish, or at least more Jewish. They needed to have the act of circumcision, and they needed to keep the laws of Moses and the holy days and many other requirements that they thought it meant to be Jewish and therefore a believer in God, one that adhered to the covenants. And they said that you must do this, otherwise you do not have salvation. And perhaps they were even arguing that that was Jesus' point because did not Jesus say to the Samaritan woman, salvation comes from the Jews? And that is true. Jesus did say that. And salvation does come from the Jews, but it namely comes through the Jew, namely Jesus, not from being Jewish. Why? Because as I've said and will say again, you cannot be Jewish enough in order to be saved. You cannot do enough good works. Because if that was so, then Paul would have been saved before he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Because there was no more Jew, greater Jew, Jew that was more fastidious than Paul. In fact, in regards to the law, he could say that he was blameless, but it is only when he realized that it's not by the law or the law keeping, but by Christ that one is saved, that he was saved and changed and converted. And in reality, it changed his entire perspective. It it changed his entire worldview. His whole world changed. And that is why Paul is so adamant in the book of Galatians, which the book of Galatians is really just a fuller explanation of Acts chapter 15. The very issue that they are speaking of in Acts chapter 15 is the very issue that is still going on in the church in Galatia. But Paul says in that letter, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you hear that? It's not by the works of the law. Why? Because the law cannot save you. There's a very interesting, perhaps even a a very odd moment in the book of Pilgrim's Progress where Moses comes along the path that Christian is on. And Moses beats down Christian, pummels him to the ground. And you might think, what is this? This is very strange. Why is Moses doing this? Well, you have to be reminded that Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. And Moses here represents the law. And it says in that book, as Christian says, that I I laid at his feet, the, the feet of Moses, as dead before him. It says, when I came to myself again, I cried for mercy But he said, I know not how to show mercy. You see, there is no mercy in the law. There is only justice. And therefore, we are guilty. We stand condemned by the law. We are not justified by the law. The law can can reflect back to us as a, a mirror how sinful, how odiousness and and our filthiness of our sins, but the law itself cannot cleanse us. Only Christ can cleanse us. 
That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, condemned sinners, justified sinners, sinners in the law, Christ died for us. And that's what makes the difference, doesn't it? Christ makes the difference, not us. His merit, his righteousness, not our own. So it does not matter how much Bible reading you do or how much civic service is accomplished or completed. It does not matter that you, you take out your recycling and that your recycling is always perfect, always beautifully put in all the different bins so that the garbage men will notice how much you recycle and how well you recycle. It does not matter if you've walked the old lady across the street or how much witnessing you do. I tell you, it will never be enough. You cannot make yourself more pleasing in the eyes of God. That is all the works of the law. We are justified by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, and that is received by grace alone. And therefore, you are, if you are in Christ this morning, you're fully pleasing in his sight. Nothing can change that. You can't add to that as well as you cannot take away from that completed work, the completed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so important to understand because in the grand scheme of things, would a circumcision have been that great of an ask? I know what the men would say, but the reality is that this is a, a minor procedure that would have had just a, a little infliction of pain, something that you could, could do and, and, and be done with. And some would say, surely it's worth it to demonstrate your, your loyalty. You're all in this. But don't you see that it does not matter how small or how great the ask or the demand may be, that anything, anything in addition to what Christ has accomplished has compromised the free, gracious nature of the gospel. Therefore, making it another gospel altogether, which Paul says in Galatia, is not a gospel. It is not good news for sinners. And that is why Paul has some not very nice things to say about those that were preaching another gospel in Antioch and in Galatia. In fact, he chastises the church in his letter, if you remember. He does not give any kind of greeting at the beginning of his letter. He just dives right into it and says, I am astonished how quickly you are turning from the grace of God. In essence, Paul is saying it's like you are, you're spitting on the free gift that has been given to you through Christ and rather you would want to achieve it through your works and, and through your right doing and your right standing through those works. Paul goes on to say, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, and that gospel that they preached to you was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul says if there is another gospel than that gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. In essence, let him be damned, Paul is saying. Why is he so 
adamant because it makes a mockery of Christ. It makes a mockery of Christ's work. See, Paul would gladly be belittled, and oftentimes he was by others, but he would not stand for his Savior and the work of his Savior, the salvation that Christ has wrought to be belittled by anyone or by anything. He was willing to go to the mat for it, and he did. That's why Paul will say to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation, for the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And that's what's taking place, that the gospel was going forth to the ends of the earth, and and Jews and Gentiles were being united in this one gospel, but that was now at stake. There were those that were trying to keep that division, that were trying to keep that wall. And that's why they had to have this Jerusalem council, as we saw last week. And there, they got it right, right. Peter says that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. James said this is the, the plan of God all along, that this is the restoration of Israel. Not the nation of Israel, but the true Israel. All of the nations, to the very ends of the earth. And that's what the prophet Amos prophesied long before. And so they come to the right conclusion. And that is so important that they did. But now, it's good that they did. It's good that they came to that decision. But now it needs to be conveyed to the churches in Antioch and beyond. In a sense, the the right diagnosis had been achieved. But it's no good to have the right diagnosis if you don't treat the problem, right? Well, the letter is the the treatment, so to speak. It's the prescription, perhaps, you might say. And those that are sent with it, sent with the letter, are are to be sure that this, this treatment, that this spiritual prescription is rightly received and applied. And so take a look with me at this letter. There's several things to commend about it, several lessons that we must take note of. First, it's tone and its approach. Notice that there's no condescension. There's no air of authority. There's no dictates from on high. This is not the, the mother church correcting the daughter church, even though that's what it is in essence. That's not the tone that comes across. There's no putting them in their right place. How do we know that? Well, look at how they begin In verse 23, it says, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers. Do you notice that? It's the brothers, the apostles and elders, to the brothers, who are of Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. So it is the brothers, the Jewish brothers, to the Gentile brothers. In other words, this letter is from brother to brother, and we cannot overlook that. As I mentioned, they are writing as Jewish men, elders, apostles, and they're writing in particular to the Gentiles in these places. And so it is the Jews to the Gentiles, and yet it's the brothers to the brothers. It's not the greaters to the less than. It's not even the masters to the servants or the teachers to the understudies, not even the the fathers 
to the sons, even though that's what it was in essence. They begin this with brothers to brothers. In other words, we are all equal at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, it does not matter if you've walked with the Lord for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, or if you have someone else that has just come to the Lord, you are equal in Christ. You are brothers, you are sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot even add to ourselves our our faithfulness over the years to say, well, I'm just a little bit greater. I've earned this many more merit badges in the life that I have shown forth my demonstration of good fruits, and so that makes me just a little bit better than you. No, they begin by saying, no, we are brothers because of Christ. And that is a great beginning. You know that saying that you you had me at hello? I think that's exactly what took place here, that the apostles had the Gentiles at hello calling them brothers, not less than. Those first words are so very important. Men, there's wonderful lessons that you can learn here, especially as you mess up with your your wife and do something boneheaded, which we all know happens quite often. And if it does, well, welcome to the club, uh, because it happens in my home as well. But those first words of your apology are very important. If you lead with, Woman, it does not matter what you say after. It's not going to go very well with you, is it? But if you begin with the words, dear, honey, sweetie, or whatever other pet name you have for each other, which some of you have some very interesting ones, but, you know, that's okay. Whatever they are, whatever keeps those home fires going, that is great. Begin with that. That is a much better approach. So too here, calling them brothers has that affection, has that connotation to it that we are in this together. We're not coming to you as something that is better or greater. But note, that does not mean that there is classless distinctions within the church. There are those that call themselves the brethren, where they have no titles, no positions within the church. Everyone's equal. All have the level playing field within the church. No, we, we shouldn't go to that extreme because notice what they say is the, the brothers, both the apostles and the, the elders, they, they clarify who they are. They have those distinct titles and those are titles with authority and they're going to go on to give instruction, instruction that needs to be, be heated, right? But notice that they do not come in hot, so to speak. They don't come in Dictating, showing their authority, trying to to dominate the situation. That's what Peter had in mind, right? When he writes in 1 Peter 5, writing to the elders of the church, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a a fellow elder. Notice what Peter says there. He says, I don't write to you as the the pope or the, the chief elder or even an apostle. He says, I write to the elders as a fellow elder. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Notice that. As an elder, you have authority. 
You have a charge that's given to you, a charge that you must take seriously, but you, you don't do it coming in with just dictates or, or demanding that people respond to it. He says you do it first and foremost through your example and doing your oversight, not under compulsion, not domineering, but willingly as a, as a kind and caring shepherd. And that's true of any leader, isn't it? True leaders lead with meekness, which is power, authority under control and humility and, and care. But you don't use your authority to, to hinder but to, to help. You don't use it to, to clobber someone over the, the head, but rather you use it to, to love. In other words, we're to lead like our Lord led, who had all authority in heaven and on earth, and yet he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I think we see that tone, that right approach in this letter. Second, there's a, a pastoral care and concern that comes across. They know that those that they are writing to have been troubled by what has taken place. Their, their faith has been shaken. You can imagine why. There are people that are saying that you don't belong. You do not have salvation, and yet notice that they, they come with care and concern. They acknowledge the problem. It says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. They acknowledge the, the hurt and trouble that has been caused, that they are not wrong. The Gentiles are not wrong in feeling this way. In other words, they, they come with empathy. And I know my wife is inwardly rolling her eyes because this guy stinks at empathy. <laughs> but it is something that I am working on. I'm in the school of empathy, and I think there are many others that are trying to improve. There's probably many men that are getting some jabs in the side right now from their wife. Perhaps I could have just entitled this sermon, How to Communicate with Your Wife. It probably would have been that much more helpful. But notice that the apostles don't just jump to the solution, do they? They're not just Mr. Fix-It. Oh, this is what's wrong. Here's how we fix it. They acknowledge the, the hurts and the brokenness. Now, there's a lot of emotions with this. You remember how then former president, before he became president, Bill Clinton campaigned on those words, I feel your pain. Did he really feel their pain? I don't know, but he won over a lot of people with that statement, didn't he? Here was someone that was coming to them, understanding, wanting to understand, coming with empathy. And when you come with that approach, then any advice or, or wisdom that is given is going to be that much more well-received. And notice that they, they don't just send a letter, do they? They, they send representatives. They send Paul and Barnabas, who the church in Antioch loved and, and many had been converted. They say nice things about Paul and Barnabas. They, they call them our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't just send Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because there were probably some that disagreed with Paul and Barnabas on this issue, right? And so if they just sent Paul and Barnabas, maybe the church would have thought, well, is this really what the church said in Jerusalem? 
Or is this just what Paul and Barnabas wants us to hear? No, it says that they sent Judas and Silas with them. Why? To collaborate all that was said. So that, it says, will tell you the same things by the word of their mouth. That what Paul and Barnabas is saying is, is truly what was said. Because Judas and Silas were there to verify it. But again, it wasn't just a, a letter sent from on high. They, they sent others and demonstrated that, that care and concern by sending flesh and, and blood. They thought it important enough to send representatives. And this is important as we, we even think, this is an aside, but as we think about our, our work and missions, it's not just enough just to, to send money and say, oh, I'll pray for you from afar. No, we need to, as a church, send us, send representatives that go forth from us to visit these works, to, to show that we, we love them and care for them and are in this together. There's something that is conveyed that only can be conveyed in person and not just from afar. So they do that here as well. Again, what a great approach. This is what Paul talks about when he speaks in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6. He says, Though we could have demanded as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you, like nursing mothers taking care of their own children. On this Mother's Day, we all know what it's like to, to have good mothers that are gentle, that are caring, that are, that are nurturing. So too here, good leaders are like that, Paul says. We could have demanded as apostles, but rather we wanted to come to you like mothers caring for you with that, that wonderful concern, with delicacy as the situation would require. But notice this letter doesn't just come with pats on the back, with no punch. Rather, they give instructions you see that in verse 28 and 29. Seem good to us by the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. You might question why were these instructions given? Were they adding requirements of what it means to be saved? Well, of course not. That was the very issue that was being talked about. Rather, this is a, a loving exhortation to the Gentiles as they think about their life in the church, that they are not less than, they are equal than, they are brothers, but at the same time, even though they are not Jewish and are not expected to be Jewish, they should not flaunt the fact that they are Gentiles. In other words, they shouldn't flaunt their, their Gentileness why? For the sake of unity, specifically your Jewish brothers. You have to remember they lived in a pagan area. And in that pagan area, there was paganism everywhere. Everything was affected by it. The entire culture was. There was food and money that was offered to idols. The same thing that was offered to to temple prostitutes. I think that's what it speaks about when it says abstain from sexual immorality, not from Obviously, they had to abstain from sexual immorality. That was the command throughout Scripture. But, but things that had been polluted by sexual immorality in that culture in relation to these rituals, in relation to this worship, that all these things that were, were engaged in with paganism. The question was, what, were those things now tainted? 
Well, Paul makes it very clear throughout his letters that they're not, right? Food offered to idols is nothing more than food. And he would say the same thing about money and possessions. You can eat of it, you can own it, you can possess it. Why? Because all things belong to the Lord. That's Paul's point, right? Even if it was used wrongly before the possession of it, but if the brothers are bothered by it, and obviously Jewish brothers would be bothered by that because of their Jewishness, if it would cause them to stumble or sin, then, then don't use it, don't do it, don't require them to, to enter into that. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, I would rather forego that, even though I'm at liberty to eat of it, even though I, my, my conscience is not bound, I will be bound for the sake of my brother's conscience, so that he will not stumble, that he will not fall. The obvious modern day analogy that's often used is, is alcohol, correct? Very differing views within the church, and that is okay. And those that would say that it's okay to partake, that you can eat and drink, even drink alcohol to the glory of God, are one side of things. But they would be wrong to try to force others that would have another view to, to partake, to, to consume, and to say you're not really a Christian if you do not drink of this beer or this alcohol. Obviously, that would be wrong. It's setting up a stumbling block. But likewise, those that would forbear should not demand abstention. You see, it goes both ways, right? The burden is not conformity to my ways, but rather to liberty and ultimately to unity. And that's what I think Paul is calling for here, that you should not needlessly divide. That's what is most important. And I think that's why this instruction is given. The apostles are saying, be sensitive of your differences between you and your Jewish brethren. Paul will say the same thing in Romans chapter 14. Beware of your weaker brother. Value unity over that of getting or doing that which you want. And so they send this letter off. And we see in the second point then that the letter was received. And have you ever written a letter or perhaps more likely an email or text that was a bit contentious. And you labor over the, the right words, what should be said and what should not be said and, and how to say it and how to get across what you want to say so that it would be conveyed in the, in the right manner in which you want it to be sent. And then what happens when you, when you hit send? You wait, right? And you wait on pins and needles and you begin to second guess, well, I, you know, I really probably shouldn't have said that or I should have said this a little bit differently. And you, you're eagerly waiting the response because you want them to, to receive it in the way that it was sent. Well, the same thing goes with the apostles. How would these churches respond? Well, the good news is that it was very well received. It was just what the doctor ordered, as they say. The intended results were achieved. Why do we know that? Well, Look at the adjectives that are used by Luke. It says in verse 31, when they had gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. There was joy. If you want to know if something is of the Lord, it's usually because it's 
has rejoicing connected to it, right? There is a reason to rejoice, that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, that we as the body of Christ ought to have joy. We ought to be joyous Christians. I look around at this church. I look at SPC these days. I see that there is a lot of joy amongst you. And I tell you, that warms a, a pastor's heart. As I kind of stopped and paused last Sunday at the, the fellowship meal. First and foremost, you, you all are very loud, right? But that's a good thing. It's, it's because you're enjoying yourself. You're enjoying good food and, and good fellowship. And there is joy amongst the body of Christ. Praise God. It demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is at work and is at work in you. And that's the same thing that happens here. There's a letter that produced joy and rejoicing in God. And it goes on to say not only joy but encouragement. It says they rejoice because of its encouragement. They were encouraged by it. And again, they were, they were instructed, weren't they? They were, they were given things that they needed to do and probably work on and, and be better at. And yet, the end result was not that they were discouraged, they were encouraged. Why? Well, because I think first and foremost, they were heard. They were listened to. It felt like their, their problems mattered. Mattered enough to go all the way to, to the top, so to speak. To have a proper hearing and, and even a better response and second, they were encouraged because they were affirmed, that they weren't less than. They were indeed a part of the body of, of Christ. They weren't just the, the smaller brother. No, they were one with them in Christ. But it goes on even to say not only were they able to rejoice and they were encouraged, but it says because of Judas and Silas, they were encouraged and strengthened. And they strengthened the brothers with many words. Again, this can only be the work of the Lord, isn't it? You remember that what started this was not the strengthening of the church, but division and dissension. And no doubt the evil one was behind that, that he wanted to divide the church, to weaken the church, to destroy the church. But in the end, what happened? The church was strengthened as a result of this division, because of this strife. And I think that's always true in conflict, no matter what it is. Be it in church, or be it in your marriage, or be it in your family, or home. If you handle division and conflict properly, in other words, if you handle it God's way, the end result is that you'll be strengthened. You'll be built up, right? You may be put to the test for a time, but at the end of that testing, you will have persevered and and be strengthened through it. The same is true here. In the midst of this division and strife, they were strengthened as a result of it. It reminds me of the words of Joseph. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, so here. But lastly here, they, they not only had the strengthening, but it says that they were able to send off these brothers, Judas and Silas, back to the church in Jerusalem in peace. Notice that, that there was, the end result was that there was peace and unity in the church. The division, the dissension was squelched. Peace and unity once again was that which was valued in the church. And again, we undervalue that until it is gone. We don't understand how wonderful and how precious unity is until we've lost it. 
And therefore, it's worth fighting for. It's worth trying to maintain and defend it, to be one even as he is one. In fact, God is so emphatic about unity. And he says that he does not want your offering. He does not want your worship if you are not unified with another brother or sister in Christ. And so if that is true of you, any of you, go and make it right and enjoy that peace. Enjoy that unity that has been bought with the blood of Christ. Do you understand that we will spend all of eternity together? You might as well get along. And you might as well do so now that starts here below. But you see the results, joy, encouragement, strength, peace, unity. That's when you know when a good church decision has been made. It produces the fruit of the the Holy Spirit, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is better off. So so pray for your leaders, as I know you do, in this way, that the the works, the decisions that we would make would, would spring forth this type of fruit amongst us, that we would rejoice in the freedom that we have, the freedom of the gospel, once offered for all the saints, for Jews and Gentiles, for for you and me. I'll end with this. I mentioned at the very beginning those letters between my wife's grandfather and grandmother. And they wrote, obviously, to to keep up their relationship, didn't they? Keep that relationship in in love and and keep that connection there, even though they they were distant from one another. And they, no doubt, had that longing to be back together with one another in each other's presence. So too, I think, the same intention is here. Yes, this letter was written by the apostles, but you could really say it's the Lord's love letter to his bride, the church. That through it, he would demonstrate his love, his care, his desire for unity, even in the midst of a a hurting church and a, a hurting world. We cannot love the church more than Christ loves his church. And therefore, it's worth valuing. It's worth working for. It's worth keeping through the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel as our mission, the love of God and the love of one another's as our chief priority, and enjoying the blessings, the the fruits of the Spirit and that of unity until we would be unified in Christ. When, When words and letters and this book is no longer needed, why? Because we will be with the word, the true word, of God for all of eternity. Until that day, we are so grateful that God does not leave us without his presence, without his word, this wonderful love letter that is given to us in Holy Scripture. Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for words such as these, words that demonstrate how we should communicate the the care and love and concern, how we should Communicate the truth of the gospel, Lord, that which is so important for the freeing of mankind through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray for the unity in this church, that we would be first and foremost based upon that which is true. Lord, we know that false teachers will come in amongst us, Lord. We know that comes from the outside, but that also comes from the inside. It comes from our own hearts sometimes, thinking false truth, 
truth that is not based upon your word, upon the scripture, upon the gospel. So, Lord, we pray that you would expel that from us. And, Lord, that we would be based solely and wholly upon the free, gracious nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that gospel and through your word, we would have unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we'd be a part of the family of God, no matter how different, no matter how distinct we are. Lord, we are one because you have made us one through Christ. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.